The text for this morning's sermon is found in the book of Proverbs, the first chapter, verses 7 through 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. The book of Proverbs, just lift your eyes up a few verses to the very beginning, starts the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. In other words, he was a great king. He was the, he's a king and the son of a king. He had authority. He had power. People did what he said. People bowed down before this king. I mean, a king is more than a president. A king was really something. So a big question came to my mind. How, does, how did he treat his mother? How do kings treat their mother? Here's how he treated his mother. First Kings 2.19. You remember who his mother was? Bathsheba. Bathsheba married his father in very ugly circumstances. Okay? God did not approve of this thing. David killed Bathsheba's husband, had sex with her before that murder, and then he took her to be his wife. Solomon was born of that marriage. 1 Kings 2.19 Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down before her and sat on his throne. And then he had a throne set for the king's mother and she sat on his right. Isn't that an amazing thing? This is the king we're talking about here. He can do anything he wants to do. People bow before him. He rises when he pleases. And when Bathsheba walks into the room, his mother, he stands. And as she approaches, he bows. And then he puts a throne for her. And then they have their conversation about Adonijah. When mothers enter rooms, kings should bow. Kids don't even take their hats off today. I got this thing about hats. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm out of it. Everybody over 40 has a thing about hats today. This text has six things in it. Six things in it that relate to God and family. Proverbs is, is the most nitty-gritty, down-to-earth, rubber-hit-the-road book in the Bible. But all that stuff that you supposedly learn from ants, go to the ant thou sluggard, and bees and, and jackals in the hills and sun and moon and all kinds of... All that practical stuff that you can learn just poking around in life called wisdom, in the, in the book of Proverbs, it's taken up and related to God. Sometimes we think Proverbs is the book of stuff in the Bible that you can learn through ordinary means. Just looking at ants. They work hard in the summer so that they can have food in the winter and so learn something from that. You don't even need God. 
That's not what Proverbs is about. Proverbs is drawing all this wisdom that you can indeed get partly from the world and bringing it in relation to God. It's not what you can get from MindWorks in the Tribune or Parents Magazine or Ann Landers. There is an overlap between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, but the fatal flaw in the wisdom of the world is that God's not in the picture. That's a fatal flaw. No matter how many true things they say about diapering and spanking and whatever else, if God's not in the picture, it's a fatal flaw for that child. Let me illustrate this before I jump into the text, because I want you to I want you to feel that Proverbs is not just an ordinary book here. It's not just something that you could write. In Proverbs 30, I want to illustrate this. You don't need to look it up. You can if you want to. Verse 8, it says something about the relationship of God to your life in relation to money. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, what I want you to get from that verse is this. The issue of whether you're wealthy or poor is a God issue to the book of Proverbs. See that? It's an issue of, well, the danger of wealth lies in the fact that I might get so self-sufficient, I would say, who needs God? That's the big issue. That is the issue in money. Or, on the other end of the economic spectrum, the danger is, I might get so poor and so destitute, I would be tempted to steal. What's so bad about that? Lose your job, go to jail. That isn't what he focuses on at all. What he focuses on is, if I steal, I'm going to profane God. You see, the issue, even with something as simple and ordinary and everyday as money, and whether you happen to have a lot of it or a little of it, is not just stuff that you can learn on the horizontal level. It's a God issue. Will I say, I don't need God? And will I say, God be profane, I'm going to steal anyway? The book of Proverbs is a book about life under and for God. Okay? Now the text. And we're going to illustrate this from verses 7 to 9 with six ways that this text has to do with the family under God. Number one, the family is God's idea. The family is God's idea. Solomon writes in verse 8, Hear my son... Your father's instruction, do not forsake your mother's teaching. You got a mother, you got a father, and you got a son. He just takes it for granted. He doesn't say, wow, that's neat, or that's unique, or what an interesting possible family. He just takes it for granted. You got a mother, you got a father, you got children, and he works with that all the way through this book. And the reason he does is because he's read Genesis. He's read the beginning of the Bible, which starts like this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful 
multiply and fill the earth. So you got a man, you got a woman created in God's image, brings them together and says, now fill the earth, be fruitful. And how's that supposed to happen? Kind of random mating? Pregnancy here, pregnancy there, a man here, a man there. Is that? Animals don't even do that. We got these two finches that come together to our bird feeder now. Even birds don't do it that way. They pair off. Well, the Bible makes real clear. Chapter 2 in the Bible, a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the way it's supposed to happen, this man created in God's image, this woman created in God's image, commissioned to fill the earth, is that this man and this woman leave, the parents, they cleave and they become one flesh. And that word cleaving is a covenant word. A covenant relationship is created and the one flesh implies physical, sexual union. And in that union, the fruitfulness happens and the earth is filled. Now that ideal of a family, a father and a mother and fruitfulness can be broken. It can be broken with a tragic death and can be broken with a tragic divorce. And God has been faithful to millions upon millions of mothers or fathers who have had to raise their children alone. And if we had another sermon to preach, I could tell you story after story of significant believer making an impact for God upon the world who grew up in a single parent family. But having said that, that does not nullify that God's original pattern and ideal is a man and a woman cleaving to one another in covenant love and being fruitful in raising children. That's the ideal for the fulfillment of his family design. So point number one, the family is God's idea. Number two, the family is God's basic school for instructing children how to live in the world. Verse eight. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So the father is an instructor, the mother is a teacher, and therefore the family is school. I'm just where it seems obvious to me. The father is an instructor, the mother is a teacher, therefore we are not making a mistake to say the family is a school. God ordained not merely that the family fill the earth with beings, but that it fill the earth with instructed beings, taught beings. So it's not just a productive thing, this family, it is a school, it's a teaching thing. Life does not come naturally to human beings. Like it does to these birds I watch each day. I just marvel. Who taught you to do that? That's incredible what you can do. Who taught you that? Who t where did you go to school to learn that? And they would have no answer. They can't even talk about it. Well, we, we've got a little bit. We've, we suck naturally at our mother's breast without having to be taught. We, the little irises on our eyes, you shine a bright light in a baby, they go, they go down. Nobody taught us to do that. 
Um, I think there's a natural falling instinct so that if you go like this with the baby, they put out their hands. And there are a few other little things like that. Well, that won't take you very far in the business world. <laughs> you, you, human life, you got to learn it. Everything. You've got to learn everything. You leave this little baby there, you die in a few days or less than a few days. It's, humanity is a taught thing. Hardly anything comes naturally to us. Isn't that amazing? We're not like the animals in that regard. We are so utterly dependent upon this thing called a teaching unit family, this school. Now, if we parents believe that somewhere along the way in that schooling process, we need to start getting some help from a nanny, daycare, relative, grandmother, aunt, Sunday school, day school, primary school, secondary school. If we believe that somewhere along the way we've got to get some help in this process, we are still accountable to God for what goes into the mind and into the heart and what character is shaped by those influences. Now, I mention this here and I press it because we're a church filled with parents of little children who are moving up. And we're going to be a church filled with parents of teenagers before long. There's a lot of us who have teenagers, but not nearly as many as have little ones. So we're on the front end of this big bubble of crisis. And I'm passing through it first to pay my dues so that hopefully I'll be a good shepherd for the next 10 or 15 years. But every one of you will face the question, what help do I get? And how much help? And do I get unbelieving help or only believing help? Do I pay this way or do I pay that way? In other words, the whole big issue of education, the whole big issue of character formation, the whole big issue of what goes into this brain and shapes this child's mind and heart and worldview and market, most education comes through modeling. It's a big issue for hundreds of us. I struggle right now. Right now, for next fall, with two of my sons. What's the best way to partner with others to do what God's going to ask me about at the judgment day? Because they are my responsibility. They're not Sunday school's responsibility. They're not private school's responsibility. And they're not public school's responsibility. They're mine. And these other entities exist to help me. And I must decide, under God, what I want my sons to be shaped by. And you do too, if you're a parent. So I stress that even if you get help in this whole process, you will be called to account for the help you got. And what they built in to your children. It is not an easy question. It's hard in our day. We need to help each other 
Be patient and work at this together. Number three, the foundation of family instruction is the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you ask this father, uh, what's the basis and foundation and integrating theme of your instruction? And you ask this mother, what's the basis and foundation and the integrating motif of your teaching? The answer of these two in this verse, looking back to verse 7, would be the fear of God. The fear of God is where it starts. The fear of God is what carries it along. The fear of God is what's out there. The family doesn't just exist to teach kids to hold spoons or to walk on two feet or to say please or to tie shoes or to read or to look both ways or to cut the grass or put on makeup or drive a car. The family exists for that. That's, that should be happening in the family. The family, however, under God, exists to take all of that practical stuff, plus all the big things like courtesy and gratitude and respect and faith and courage and nobility, take all that stuff and bring it into relationship to the fear of God, the reverence of God, standing in awe of God, trusting God. The family is the place where children are taught all the things about how to live in the world in relation to God on their way to the next world. That's what the family's for. And the foundation of it is the fear of God. So the family is God's idea, number one. The family is God's school, number two. And the unifying theme of the curriculum is the fear of God, trusting God Bowing before God, reverencing God, standing in awe of God, making God central in your life. Number four, under God, fathers and mothers share in the responsibility of this family instruction. Verse eight again, hear my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. It doesn't say fathers instruct, mothers change diapers. It doesn't say fathers work at the office. And so they may hand over the instruction of their children to their wives. Nor does it say mothers work at the office and can hand over the teaching of their children to a caregiver. It says fathers instruct and mothers teach. It is a shared responsibility under God. Now, if this were Father's Day... I would lift the trumpet to my lips and I would champion new, fresh initiatives for fathers at home to take initiative with the Bible and with prayer and with teaching because the women are crying for it, man. They're crying for it. It's coming out of their eyes. It's coming out of their mouths. It's coming through letters. It's coming in my office. It is all over the place. Women want men in Christian homes to lead in this area of Bible reading and instruction and prayer. But it isn't Father's Day, so I won't say that. <laughs> Instead, I will try to encourage mothers that you have an awesome responsibility, that might be a heavy word, let me just use the word privilege, to do some things that are simply stunning. Um, 
God has a way of nullifying the, the things in the world that are great. And he has a way of exalting the things in the world that are lowly. And one of the things that's been lowly for about 20 years is motherhood. And only recently has there been an inevitable whiplash. It always happens in society. If there's an unrealistic, stupid, asinine, out-of-it social movement that belittles something of tremendous value, it's going to whiplash. Well, it is whiplashing, and so the letters are just pouring into... Uh, Newspapers and magazines and Ann Landers types all over the country saying things like this. I am so tired of all those ignorant people who come up to my husband and ask him if his wife has a full-time job or if she's just a housewife. Here's my job description. I'm a wife, mother, friend, confidant, personal advisor, lover, referee. Peacemaker, housekeeper, laundress, chauffeur, interior decorator, gardener, painter, wallpaperer, dog groomer, veterinarian, manicurist, barber, seamstress, appointment manager, financial planner, bookkeeper, money manager, personal secretary, teacher, disciplinarian, entertainer, psychoanalyst, nurse, <laughs> diagnostician. I wonder why everybody laughs at that one. That was the first service, too. Nurse, diagnostician, public relations expert, dietitian, nutritionist, baker, chef, fashion coordinator, and letter writer for both sides of the family. <laughs> I am also a travel agent, speech therapist, plumber, automobile maintenance and repair expert. From the studies done, it would cost more than $75,000 a year to replace me. I took time out of my busy day to write this letter and because there are still ignorant people around who believe that a housewife is nothing more than a babysitter who sits on her behind all day and watches soap operas. Amen. Now that needs to be said. It's being said all over the place by thousands in this whiplash on anti-motherhood that has existed for a while in our culture. However, that letter doesn't touch the greatest thing. I mean, those are good things. Those are really significant Things that give significance to this tremendous calling called motherhood. But it didn't even touch the main thing. I thought of uh, collecting stories of great men and women who've left their mark in books, you know. They're recorded. And every one of them had mothers. And their mothers get a footnote. I was reading a biography of Benjamin Palmer this week, probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century in the Southern Church. And he, his, his mother gets four pages out of 649 pages. Four. Four pages. And uh, I was pretty good. And he said, this man would not have been the preacher he was without the mother that he had. And you can multiply that story over and over. The mothers are invisible, by and large. And their children who change the world on the outside to do the upfront public things, they get the credit and they wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't have known how to do it. They wouldn't have had the strength of character. They wouldn't have had the perseverance. They wouldn't have had the personality if somebody called mother hadn't built themselves into that life. Well, God sees that. God knows that. And he has a way of reversing things. What is exalted among men is an abomination to God, it says in Luke 16. Let me give you a remarkable testimony from the Bible to show you what motherhood is really all about. 
2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, I am mindful of the sincere faith in you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure is now in you as well. you got a grandmother, you got a mother, and you got a man who's going to make a great mark for God in Ephesus. And then he writes in chapter 3, You, however, continue in the things you've learned, knowing from whom you learned them. That is Eunice, your mother, who learned them from Lois, her mother. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. How? Because Eunice, your mother, poured them into you. And how did she learn them? Because Lois, her mother, poured them into her. You see, Timothy's father was a Greek, according to Acts 16.3. That is, he wasn't Jewish. He didn't know the Bible. I don't know how that marriage happened. I don't know anything about him. I just know that that comment is made, he was a Greek. She is a Jew. She knows the Scriptures. And therefore, for whatever reason, because he couldn't or wouldn't, the Scriptures came through Eunice into Timothy. And I don't know anything about Lois's husband. He's not in the picture in the Bible. But for whatever reason, because he couldn't or wouldn't, Lois, the grandmother, took the initiative to get the Scriptures into Eunice, who got them into Timothy, who got them into hundreds and thousands in Asia. And... Ephesus. And so the great thing about motherhood wasn't mentioned in that letter to Ann Landers. It, it is Christ shared so that our children go to heaven and make a mark for God. Finally, uh, oh, real brief on number five and six. Number five calls sons and daughters to be submissive to their mothers and fathers. In other words, this is just the underside, the flip side of number four. It says, hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, all of us have parents. They're either dead or, or they're alive. And many of them poured their lives into us and God into us. This text says there are two typical dangers in the rebellious human heart, the rebellious child's heart. One is the danger they experience at home. The other is the danger they experience when they leave home. At home, the danger is not to listen to dad when he talks, to close him off and shut him down. And so the text says, hear, my son, your father's instruction. And the other danger is when you're away from home, you forsake your mother's teaching. You forget it, or you just say, I'm against it. And so the text says, do not forsake your mother's teaching. It is so important that it's made part of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Finally, number six, God ordains a reward for sons and daughters who do not forsake the teaching of their mother and father. There's a reward in this, young people, and even those of you who might be tempted in your 20s and 30s and 40s to forsake the faith of your parents. There's a reward. Verse 9. Indeed, they, that is, obeying father and mother, are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now, what I hear in that verse is this. The teaching of parents founded on the fear of God is really good news. Because it's like a wreath of celebration and joy and victory on your head. And it's like pendants of gold and silver around your neck. 
Now, isn't it strange that children often don't feel the teaching of their parents as good news? One of the reasons for that is they're sinners. There's another reason. Many parents have not grown up into grace enough to feel that it's good news. Feels like you're always telling me what to do. Do, 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 do. I can remember when I was 13 years old, I can see it. There was a white garbage can with a big silver bubble on top and a door. You push like that, it always has ketchup on it or something like that. And my responsibility was to keep it clean and empty it. And my mother, I was walking through with a ball glove or something, and she said, I'm going to take that outside and empty it and clean it off. And I turned and I said, do, 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 do. All you ever say is do. I wrote a lot of letters of apology to my mother when I went off to college. We made up many times. I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner. But there's a reward. We need to hear the reward. It is good news when parents teach children under the fear of God how to live in the world. Paul said in Ephesians 6 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. Promise. That's what verse 9 is here. It's promise. Do not despise your mother when she is old. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her rejoice who gave you birth. Let me close with that. Not only Does a wreath come upon my head when I remember Ruth, Eulalia, Piper's teaching? I have a crown on my head when I remember it and follow it. But a crown goes back onto her head. And if she were living, it would be a conscious crown here on earth. And she would rejoice. And I just call all of us today on this Mother's Day, make a call, make a resolution. And fulfill this great work. Don't forsake the teaching of your mother. It will be a wreath of grace to your own head. It will be a crown of joy to hers. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray now that as we go, you will make this day a day of ministry and joy and honor. I pray that fathers and mothers would be strengthened. I pray that children would be humbled so that they would not be rebellious like I was sometimes rebellious. And I pray, O oh God, that you would minister to mothers and give them strength for their great calling on this day. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you, all of you, mothers, peace. I love you. God loves you. May you be strengthened. You're dismissed.